What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 160 of the Justin Insight podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and their journey through it. As always, I am your host, Tim Birkbeck, who is a lot less stressed after a bit of a manic week. Uh, so I thought I'd start September being unemployed as my sort of contracts where I'm currently working was due to end, so got in a bit of a panic. Uh, was frantically searching for jobs, still kind of looking for jobs in my particular field, but I can kind of take the foot off the gas a little bit now just because, yeah, panicking about not having a job as of September. But thankfully, my contract's now been extended, so that's a massive relief off my shoulders. So can go into editing this podcast and doing all the things I like a bit more relaxed. So that's a positive for me. Anyway, that's enough about me. I don't know why I'm kind of rambling telling you about that, but hope everyone is doing well. Uh, as always, just want to say the usual massive thank you to everyone who checked out last week's episode with Will's Killingsworth, uh, an episode that a lot of people seem to dig and bought a lot of new listeners to the show as well. So really, really appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate Will trusting me being the first podcast he'd ever be on. So that was, again, really really thankful for that um a reminder if you do like what you hear on the show uh then you can rate subscribe review what on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on um and if you want to support us even further you can do so by visiting the patreon page which is patreon.com forward slash just an inside podcast um gonna keep this intro as short as possible because we've got a pretty amazing chat lined up for you today uh, this week, I am joined by uh, Russian Circles and Sumac bassist Brian Cook. Um, as always, we discuss sort of Brian's early discovery of music and how he kind of went through sort of playing instruments to get full onto playing bass and enjoying the bass. Uh, how things have kind of evolved over time for him as a musician leading up to what he's doing in Russian Circles and Sumac. Um, there's, uh, we discuss him coming out as a gay man. And obviously how sort of Russian circles are now veered as this sort of pillar of the sort of post-metal scene and how they sort of keep things fresh within themselves as well. Oh, and of course, there's a lot of chat about Botch as well. So if you're a Botch fan, this is one for you. Um, so yeah, please sit back, enjoy the chat I have with Brian, and I'll see you on the other side. So joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is bassist of Russian Circles and Sumac, Brian Cook. Brian, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to have a little chat with me. Um, I hate starting things with this, but it's the obvious. How is everything? How are you doing with the whole lockdown COVID situation? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, actually, all things considered. You know, it's it's like everyone else, there's you know, good days and bad days and, uh, you know, some, some existential worries and anxiety there. And, uh, you know, there's the whole wondering what the future holds, with, yeah. with, you know, uh, my projects as well as just, you know, venues and booking agents and all the people that we work with who are sort of dependent on us being on tour to survive financially. So, you know, all that's pretty rough, but when it really comes down just to my day to day, like I'm, I'm in a pretty fortunate situation where, 
you know, I have a, a husband who is sort of able to financially sustain us while we're sort of in this weird period. Mm. You know, I think there's, it's, it was a bummer to have to cancel tours and, you know, basically take all this time off when it wasn't anticipated, but there's also just, uh, I don't know. I think there is a personal acknowledgement that we've been going so hard for so long with touring constantly that yeah. there's, you know, just, it's kind of nice to have this sort of forced uh, hiatus where. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of what I was going to ask. Cause obviously music's been a massive part of your life for such a long time. And like all the bands you've been a part of, 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 not exactly being quiet like you've always been in active touring bands recording bands and whatever so has it been quite strange to have a kind of a step back and not have such a kind of on-the-go lifestyle yeah it's definitely it's definitely a little weird um just because i'm so used to always having that thing that's you know looming on the horizon always having a full calendar always having you know multiple flights booked out for something and now it's just kind of like this big open void of <laughs> yes yeah. but you know at the same time it's like i think you know you spend enough time like touring and sitting in a van seat all day and you know drinking more beer every night than you probably should and drinking more coffee than you probably should during the day that like i think there's a lot of just weird like minor health issues that uh have kind of benefited from not <laughs> that lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's like i was dealing with like some some sciatica for a while and that's kind of gone away i know mike from russian circles uh had some sort of repetitive stress injuries on his wrist from playing guitar so much and you know mm. i think things like that have kind of uh been alleviated which is really nice um so from that perspective, it's nice to have a little downtime. I think it's it's nice to uh, do a little more, uh, you know, behind the scenes work, more creative work, instead of constantly yeah. feeling like you have to keep up this kind of momentum. So, you know, there's a lot of things about forced time off that really sucks. But I think if you're looking for the good side of it, there's definitely perks to it and you know i'm kind of enjoying uh a little more normalcy and stability in my life for the time being but i'm also, I'm also yeah, ready to go back well, out on tour and do all that again so, yeah. <laughs> yeah well kind of like having that downtime i've got to admit kind of had a little look on your instagram just doing sort of research ahead of this interview and saw that you and your husband have kind of been out in the in the woods in a lovely little cabin for a little while so that must have yeah. been a nice kind of breakaway yeah it's been nice you know it's it's uh it's enabled us to do a lot of things that we put off for so long just because it's you know tour is always this sort of inter interruption to our life um and it's fine you know it's it's, it's just it's part of the way it's always been but you know it is kind of nice to be like ooh, we can actually plan a vacation and not have to worry about you <laughs> yeah. know, interfering with you know band opportunities and things like that so yeah, mm. there, there's a side. How, how long have you guys... Got, I'll, I'll get into a bit more of your relationship a little bit later, but how long have you guys been, been married now? Uh, today is actually our sixth wedding anniversary, but, but we, have oh, wow. like, we have like three anniversaries because we have 
the anniversary for when we first started dating, which was, I was like 22 years ago. And then oh, wow. we got married in Portland, Oregon in 2004, because it was, it was legal for like three weeks. But then that got, <laughs> yeah. that got like, you know, nullified and vetoed. So that was voided. And then, uh, then we got married again in 2014 in New York, um, really randomly, just because we weren't going to get married until it was like a nationwide thing. Um, right. And then even then it was just kind of like, well, do we really need to do this? But then my husband's work was like, well, if you want health insurance, you have to get married. So I was like, all right, let's get, let's get married. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, we'll get on to the musical side of things. So how I kind of always like to open these chats up is to ask my guest what kind of got them into alternative music. So what was your kind of first exposure of, of getting into alternative music? Um, I don't know. I mean, I was really interested in the, in the radio from a really young age. Like I really loved, you know, the, the soft rock hits of the 80s. Uh, I loved Survivor mm. and Chicago and foreigner and all that kind of stuff like the little kid yeah and uh as i was approaching adolescence like getting to like sixth grade seventh grade and stuff i kind of i don't know I, I was never like a big hair metal fan and that was kind of like the the main i don't know the main popular music at the time uh yeah, so it was yeah. like motley Crue and aerosmith and stuff like that and i liked a little bit of it but uh I was more sort of taken by things like REM and The Cure and The Pixies, which, you know, so they had like a little bit of airtime on things like MTV. So that's how I was sort of exposed to that stuff. But uh, yeah, I just kind of like that because it seemed like it didn't have the same theatrics and sort of like costume aspect. To it. You know, it, didn't, <laughs> yeah. it seemed a little more genuine and earnest and kind of real. So that that spoke to me way more than you know, poison or warrant or whatever. So I kind of became fascinated by that stuff. <clears throat> and then from there, that just, you know, if, if you're in junior high and you like the cure, then uh, you wind up hanging out with a different crowd and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. introduced me to I don't know, everything from bad religion to, you know, the Smiths and stuff like that. So I was, mm. you know, kind of a product of the nineties, the early nineties in that way, whereas you know, the, the sort of early college rock alternative culture was my, my gateway. And then that led into the deeper, darker territories. And I think there's also some part of it too, that was connected to skateboarding because I got really into skateboarding and when I was 13 and, you know, the whole culture around that and like Thrasher magazine was very centered on, on punk and things like that. So I think that had something to do with my my musical interests yeah well because that's something that i read was that even though sort of the music you play kind of like throughout your career has kind of been so either like a subcategory or dubbed metal in some aspect you've personally have kind of led lent more towards sort of like the punk side of things so i guess that kind of lands hand in hand with sort of like the skateboarding stuff so did that kind of open you up more to that kind of punk world kind of thing yeah and you know i, I kind of had this revelation 
a couple nights ago, but I was sort of, I was thinking about, you know, the junior high era and, uh, I got, I know junior high is like a tough time for most people. Like no one's, no one's at their best in junior high, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, I think for, for me and for my husband, we both sort of went through this experience around sixth or seventh grade where, uh, our friend group kind of like ostracized us, you know? Right. And it was, you know, I think kind of traumatic for both of us because it was kind of just this thing where it's like, what, like, why do all my friends kind of not like me anymore? Like, why do all my friends not want to hang out with me anymore? And I don't know if that's just kind of a typical uh, experience for, for gay kids. You know, I, I definitely wasn't out. Mm. I didn't think I was, you know, I don't think I was really aware of my sexuality at that age, but I feel like maybe as you're approaching adolescence, like your male peer group kind of starts picking up on things where it's like, oh, like Brian yeah, doesn't want yeah. to go to the mall to like look at girls, you know? So part of me kind of wonders if uh, that sort of difference and the sort of ramifications of that in my peer group kind of nudged me towards outsider music, you know, where it was like, you know, all my friends were really into like, Paula Abdul or Janet Jackson or whatever, like forty years <laughs> yeah. at that time, and it's like all of a sudden you're nudged out of that friend group, and it's like well, I don't want to listen to Janet Jackson. Like that's, that's the asshole <laughs> yeah. to listen to, you know. It's like I want to like sit in my room and mope and listen to like Michael Stipe mumble. Or something. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Part of me wonders if that you know the trajectory of my my musical interest is at least on some level attributed to like feeling like a bit like a, like an outsider or sort of like a, a social mm. misfit from an early age and then sort of latching on to anything that sort of felt like it was deliberately operating on the periphery is that somehow felt like that was my music and that was like my thing mm. and in terms of kind of like discovering bands like you mentioned kind of like discovering the cure and bad religion and, and things like that was it was there kind of a specific bands that you sort of really latched onto and that kind of then shaped what you were listening to in your kind of formative years because i think i think like most people have that kind of one band that they consider like everyone has favorites but there's that one band that kind of shapes who you become later on in life so were, were there any bands you can kind of remember that you were gravitating towards in your younger years i mean i'd have to say fugazi was a huge one you know fugazi wasn't necessarily the gateway drug in terms of what i was listening to because you know before i got really on board with fugazi i was already listening to dead kennedys and and minor threat and stuff like that but fugazi was like the band that was actually active you know at the time mm. and uh so they se seemed a little more relevant and, and sort of pertinent to the the landscape and Fugazi was the first concert I went to back in November of 91 and uh I mean Fugazi was already just an amazing live band you know that was part of their whole allure is that they just thrived in that in that format but you know having that be my first show was just sort of like like what is this like <laughs> is this what all <laughs> punk bands are like you know and I, I quickly learned that not all punk bands are as great as Fugazi, but, you know, uh, that show blew me away. You know, I became obsessed with the band and, you know, the fact that 
everything that they did seemed to be very ethical and sort of driven by uh, an attention to detail and, and a desire to be in control of their own creative output and their, their operating procedures and all that stuff was, uh, yeah, it was just like super fascinating to me as a kid. And it was, mm. you know, it was like, oh, this band like stands for something like this. This is like the real thing. And uh, that's, yeah. You know, that's that's always stuck with me. You know, I don't I don't live uh, and operate um, on as stringent of a code as Fugazi does. You know, we definitely charge more than five dollars for shows. We'll play twenty one and over shows and all that. But I think Fugazi was at least the band that's like, no, you're you're allowed to like be in control of those kinds of decisions, yeah. and you should think about them, and you know, you should act accordingly. So that's pretty mm. pretty huge. And I've read up as well that you kind of like were brought up in a, maybe not strict, but like in a sort of religious household and, and things like that. So obviously, I think a lot of people that come from that kind of background and that situation who then go on to be in punk, metal, hardcore bands, whatever, it's kind of a, a rebellious turn sort of thing. But for was that the case for you or were your parents sort of like quite accepting of what you were listening to or did they kind of think like what the hell is Brian listening to what was that kind of situation uh I mean it was it was a little weird just because a lot of my friends in junior high and going into high school had very adversarial relationships with their parents uh hmm. I, I I liked my parents you know I got along well with my parents I didn't always agree with my parents' views on things like politically, or I didn't always agree with some of the rules or boundaries that they set for for me. But um, I was always just sort of perplexed by my friends that like battled with their parents. Because like, <laughs> yeah. no, you don't need to like get in an argument about it. You just like nod and say, okay. And then you just do the thing that you're not supposed to do behind their back. And then like, no, <laughs> why have an argument about it, you know? So, um, so, you know, even though um, I was brought up in, in a, you know, conservative religious military family, like my, my parents are, are awesome people, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're not closed-minded and as they've gotten older, they've only gotten more and more progressive politically, you know, like coming out was, was a hard thing and it was hard on them, but, you know, they're, they're accepting and, and loving parents and, you know, I think they're always they've always been people that are uh very empathetic and very concerned with you know what's actually right and, and sort of ethical as opposed to you know the weird fundamentalist like well this is what the bible says so you know <laughs> like that's yeah, the way it goes yeah. you know i think my parents are a lot more reflective and uh and uh yeah way way cooler than that so <laughs> so yeah like you know i think a lot of the struggle with adolescence and teenage years was just you know sort of harboring this weird growing acknowledgement that that i was gay and then just trying to grapple with how to like bring about that devastating news and i think on some level you know when you're carrying something like that as a kid it definitely affects your behavior and and you know i think i definitely latched on to people that i 
saw as being sort of outside of the norm and outside of the mainstream because it was like, mm. hey, you know, there's, you don't have to live according to other people's rules. You know, you can still be a moral person or an ethical person, but, you know, you can question the rules you're sort of brought up with and you can, you know, challenge paradigms and, uh, you know, you can accept people who are different and, uh, you know, that, that, that was something that I found in punk and I really latched onto. And I was fortunate that my parents, uh, I think they were concerned about some of the music that I listened to. I mean, I remember they found a couple of my Jane's Addiction cassette tapes and they were pretty happy about <laughs> yeah. those album covers. But but overall they were just like, well, you know, you're your own person and you have to make the choice. And you know, we, we might not like this, but like we're not we're not here to dictate, you know, what kind of books you can read or what kind of music you can listen to. We, mm. we're, we're hoping that you can exercise your own judgment and act accordingly. And yeah, I think. I think that was, you know, good parenting. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So then in terms of you actually kind of discovering music for yourself and wanting to play music, obviously we now know you as the bassist of these incredible bands and the bands that you've been in in the past. But what was your kind of first instrument of choice? Did Was bass always something that you wanted to play? Did you kind of dabble with anything else? Where, what was your kind of entrance point in actually playing? uh bass wasn't my first choice um i think i really like most kids i wanted to play guitar because guitar is exciting Mm. you know the exciting instrument but uh you know when i was getting into punk and starting to play music i was 14 and living in a small town in hawaii that didn't have you know we didn't have guitar centers or sam ash stores or any of the big sort of guitar chain stores didn't exist out there at that time frame so it was kind of like whatever i could find was what i was going to have to play and uh yeah i'm I'm left-handed so i was like i don't think i can really handle i don't think i can find a left-handed instrument and i definitely don't think i can handle guitar like learning guitar right-handed that's too many strings (laughs) so i was like bass seems like the only choice because it's only four strings and you know i love the pixies and listening to like kim deal play because it was like oh yeah like i think i can handle a kim deal bass line like that's like pretty that, that's going to be within my skill set so uh yeah i picked up bass just because it seemed like the thing that i could probably actually pull off and yeah so was it kind of like I don't know, not necessarily like a natural fit, but because obviously you'd kind of, I don't want to say to have this inner struggle because it's not necessarily the case, but like because you'd kind of already had that thought process of, well, I can't do guitar. So I don't want to say you settled for bass, but like once you kind of got in the rhythm, like did you find it quite an easy fit and quite quick to pick up? Uh, I think so. I mean, I remember... You know, my, my older brother briefly had a guitar and uh, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And it was it was kind of mm. alluring to like look at and be like, oh, that'd be fun to play that. But once I put it in my hands, it just didn't really make any sense. But with bass, yeah. it was like, I don't know. It, it felt like it felt right in my hands. And it's like, oh, okay, I think I can, I can kind of, like, I, I want to play this, you know, like I, 
yeah, I walked yeah. into the room and saw the base in the corner. I was like, oh, gotta go. I gotta go pick that thing up for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. To me, that's that's what you really want out of an instrument. You know, you can buy whatever fancy, expensive guitar you want, but if it doesn't call you to pick it up, you know, it's no good. So, uh, bass guitar always kind of satisfied that that craving. You know, it was there and it was exciting and it felt right in my hands. So. That's cool. So then in terms of, well, actually before I kind of go into that, so did you say you, you grew up in I did, Hawaii? yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, like, this is completely naive in, in my aspect because I know very little about sort of the musical, well, I know a bit about the American music scene, but, like, in terms of, like, certain geographical places, I know it's very different. So growing up in that area, were there kind of, shows going on that you could go to like what was your kind of introduction to actually like the live aspect of music oh you mentioned obviously seeing fugazi yeah. but like was there kind of like a small diy scene was that because i know like some places in the states have like like basement scenes and and house shows and things like that but what was your kind of like entrance point in that aspect uh it was cool i mean it was a cool place to grow up it was definitely uh way the fuck off the beaten path so we didn't have, <laughs> yeah. you know we didn't have uh you know we didn't have basement shows there's no basements in hawaii like no one no one has a basement there so that culture yeah. was sort of absent you know as i kind of mentioned it was just hard to find guitars on the island so there weren't like a ton of local bands although there were you know there were definitely bands that there's always a local band that opened a show for a touring artist that came through there were mm. a decent amount of bands that came through Hawaii at the time. Um, Golden Voice, who was a, a big promoter on the West Coast, had an office out there. So, um, oh, that's cool. So they brought in, you know, like the the first year I started going to shows in Hawaii, I saw Fugazi and Dinosaur Junior and Social Distortion. And oh, Tara. Awesome. So there was like there's opportunities to see bands, mostly because uh, people would play Honolulu as a stopover on the way out to Japan or Australia. So, right. um, so we kind of, we benefited from that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it was hard to find uh, punk music there. It was, I didn't know about the entire culture of fanzines or anything like that until I moved to the mainland. Um, it was definitely interesting because it was also pre-internet. So uh, the things that kind of became popular there um, when I was a teenager were, were really random and kind of scattershot. So like for me, like one of the biggest punk bands operating at the time was Firehose. And okay. I, I mean, if you lived in my town and you were interested in punk, you loved Firehose. And then when I yeah, moved to Washington, yeah. everyone's like, who the fuck is Firehose? Like, no, no one cares. <laughs> yeah. um, but for whatever reason, you know, that was, you know, in the weird bubble we lived in, they were a huge deal. Um, and one of the big interesting outlets uh, for music in my last year of junior high and going into high school was a local radio station called Radio Free Hawaii. And they didn't have uh, standard programming. The way they operated was they had ballot boxes set up at every coffee shop, record store, uh, cafe, like any sort of like 
quasi hip independent business on the island at a little yeah. ballot box and you could fill out this ballot to you know pick five artists that you wanted to hear five songs you wanted to hear and then you could downvote artists too so if you hated you know uh new kids on the block it could be like i no new kids on the block and that would count it okay so what would happen is you know everyone that had kind of an interesting taste in music whether it was like the smiths or you know new order or whatever you know they'd write in their favorite bands but then also like vote against everything that was on top 40 at the time the stuff that (laughs) actually got played was all like kind of cool interesting uh really diverse programming. I mean, you had like reggae and punk and hip hop, uh, all kind of like in the, in the rotation, the weekly rotation, but it was all the kind of like cream of the crop stuff that was just under the radar. So that was like a huge, huge resource, uh, being a teenager out there. It was really exciting and like almost kind of sad that it didn't catch on and become a more popular model for other radio stations but mm. yeah it sounds really cool it sounds cool, almost kind of like democratic in in that sense yeah like, like people can actually choose what they want to listen to rather than whoever the the dj is at the time picking their favorite ones or being kind of fo- having to follow a script as, as you say of like whatever's in the top 40 kind of thing so it's yeah, it cool. awesome so then in terms of you actually like playing music like obviously you said kind of like picking up the bass and it kind of felt natural and things like that. So were you like doing any bands while you were still in Hawaii or was it not until you kind of moved over to the mainland that you sort of started kind of getting your feet wet in that aspect? Yeah. Like me and a couple of friends had, had a punk band that was really terrible. Um, (laughs) That was, that really only lasted like the last six months that I lived there. And then when I turned 15, uh, my dad, who was military, got stationed in Washington, so I moved to Tacoma, and, uh, you know, for about a year, I was trying to find people that wanted to be in a band, but I like, didn't really know anyone, and, like, lived on a military base, so, you know, uh, when you live in a military base, people kind of, like, cycle in and out a lot, so it's kind of hard to find you yeah, know, people yeah. that you can really develop long-standing friendships with so yeah there was about a year there where I just played a lot of bass on my own and wrote songs alone at home but didn't didn't really have any sort of opportunity to play with other people and then when I turned 16 uh I had a math class with uh David Knudsen who was just some dude who I overheard talking to another person about wanting to start a band but needing a bass player and I just like chimed in. I was like, I play bass. And, uh, you know, Dave really wanted to do kind of like heavy, like kind of Soundgarden type stuff. And, but he was like, but I also want to do a cover of Dead Kennedy's Too Drunk to Fuck. And I love Dead Kennedy's. So it's like, all right, I don't really care about Soundgarden, but if there's Dead Kennedy's cover involved, <laughs> yeah. like sign me up. And then that was, that was the beginning of Botch. So. Well, so that kind of answers my next question, because I was going to say, like, a lot of people's introduction to you was obviously through Botch, but I was going to say, was there kind of anything of note sort of prior to that? But it kind of sounds like Botch was kind of the jumping in point. Yeah, I mean, that was really kind of the first serious, serious band. And I mean, it was a a dramatic uh, 
you know, step up from my, my punk band in Hawaii because, you know, my punk band in Hawaii, it was all, it was three people, you know, all kind of like learning how to play their instruments first time. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, like not knowing what a power chord was, you know, not really knowing how <laughs> yeah. to like, you know, what a traditional drum beat supposed to sound like. It was like, it was like the shags or something where it was like, is this music? Like, who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it, it has like instruments involved so it must be music but it was really just yeah people, kids figuring it out and then to jump from that to botch where it was like you know Dave was already really good at guitar our drummer was like in jazz band so he had good chops and just like oh shit this is this is kind of like I gotta step up my game because these dudes can actually yeah. play but so how old were you at this point? That was 93, so I would have been 16. Oh, wow, I didn't realize you were all so so young at the time. Yeah, I mean, we started in 93, but, you know, we were kind of a terrible band for a while, and, uh, you know, <laughs> we did a few different demos that were all pretty terrible, and then, you know, we didn't actually record uh, our first 7-inch until, I think, 95 or something, and then, mm. you know didn't put out our first full length until 98 so we were around a while before we were kind of like a real serious band yeah and i don't want to kind of go over the whole sort of history of botching i think because i think it's been well documented in the past people have done various kind of retrospectives on the band and, and things like that but just because obviously like kind of looking back on on that band as you say like you were a band for a period of time even before you kind of got to that point of no notoriety in some aspects so i guess if we just kind of take those kind of embryonic years to, to sort of start with like obviously nowadays a lot of people cite botch as a, an influence and a kind of a reference point but when you guys were kind of starting what was the kind of not necessarily the goal of the sound but were there kind of ideas of what you wanted to sound like a little bit. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, at least in that era, I think it's, it's, it was a little different uh, after the 90s or maybe even later in the 90s. But like in the early 90s, it was like if you just found anyone that played another instrument, it was kind of like, oh, shit. Like, all right, start a band. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, there wasn't uh, you you didn't really have the luxury of of being like, all right, we're going to sound like this because, you know, who knows what the other person was actually into, you know, with, with botch, it was, you know, like Dave was a big metal dude and I didn't really care about metal. You know, I liked a couple mm. of metal records, but, uh, you know, I was, I was a punk kid and I felt like on some level punk was kind of like the antithesis of metal. So, um, it wasn't until I started kind of discovering some of the, the bands that were sort of crossovers. That I was like, Oh, okay. Like I, I can appreciate, you know, the, this aspect of heavy metal and that kind of broadened that world for me. But when we started, you know, it was like Dave and, and Tim really wanted to be kind of like in a, in a heavier kind of alternative band, like something like helmet or, uh, yeah. You know, uh, like I said, Soundgarden or like Ministry or Rage Against the Machine, you know, like that kind of stuff was 
sort of popular at the time. And then I was more into minor threat and dead Kennedys and Fugazi. Um, and then we had barely been a band. We'd maybe been a band for like a month or two when uh, we went to go see this local band called Undertow play and Undertow were a straight hardcore band, mm. um, but not like a traditional straight edge hardcore band. They're kind of like a more metallic kind of heavy, heavy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we were all just sort of floored by that and was like, oh, this is, this is what we need to do. Cause this like, this has like the punk approach to things, but it's like metal tonalities and like, like intensity and uh, that kind of like that show got us just completely sucked into like the current hardcore scene. Because prior to that, yeah. I'd been into like, like I said, like Minor Threat and I liked Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of the Day, but it was all like stuff that was in the past. Like it was like, oh yeah, hardcore, that was like a cool era. Like I didn't know that there were <laughs> yeah. bands that were still kind of waving that flag. Um, and so seeing like the modern, uh, incarnation of that stuff was was like totally life-altering for for all of them. Mm. and that kind of set us on the path to being a hardcore band but uh you know because we had sort of started off not as a hardcore band I think we already had uh sort of musical ideas that were a little outside of the box of hardcore and we kind of yeah. wanted to retain some of that and I think also because we kind of came in to the hardcore scene already as a band who had just sort of recently discovered it, the, the sort of tribalism of the local Seattle hardcore scene didn't take too well to us initially. And they're kind of like, oh, who are these oh, okay. like new jacks from Tacoma? Like these guys aren't like a real hardcore band. So there was at least like a year of us uh, trying to get shows and, you know, if we got thrown on a bill it usually wasn't a very cool bill or if we did manage to get on like <laughs> yeah. a hardcore bill it was kind of like a bunch of the the scene elders like standing with their arms crossed like scowling at us and it was just like right right the fuck is this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you know eventually we kind of won people over and you know got got our foot in the door and you know it's probably a, i think a big part of it was we were just sort of like, well, if the Seattle hardcore scene doesn't want us, we'll just make our own scene down in Tacoma. And mm. we started putting on shows at community centers and, you know, getting bands that were friends of ours that were also outside of the hardcore scene to play on bills. And then, you know, we started getting these shows where there was several hundred people showing up. And, you know, we got to the point where we could pay a bigger hardcore band, you know, a couple hundred bucks to headline our show. And then, all of a sudden, all these Seattle hardcore people came down and are like, oh, this botch band's kind of like actually like building their own thing. And that was yeah. kind of our, our entry point into, into the, the, the bigger Seattle hardcore scene, the huge thriving you know, scene <laughs> of like 75 people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then in terms of kind of like, as I said, like, still to this day people look back on botch with kind of this um what's the word i'm kind of looking for like trend setting band sort of thing of, of the time and as i say still kind of quoted as a reference point to to this day in 2020 sort of thing but being in that band at the time like was there kind of any a moment that you can remember that like 
I, I guess maybe kind of as you said kind of building it up for, for yourselves kind of thing and then people take notes but like the idea of people actually getting invested in your band and maybe people from outside of Tacoma and Seattle actually giving a shit about what botch was was there a moment that you can remember when like I guess the wider world started to take notice uh yeah I mean I think it was like kind of a lot of baby steps for us you know the when we started off it was just like oh, it'd be cool to like record a demo and then we recorded a demo and that was exciting. And then I was like, oh, it'd be cool to play a show. And, you know, you play a couple shows and then it's like, man, it would be really cool if like people like songs, like if you played a show and like people sang along or like people, you know, mm. moshed or whatever. And uh, it was one of the first shows that we kind of through for ourselves, or I guess I should say it was our roadie who put it on, this guy, Mike, um, and maybe our drummer, Tim, I'm trying to remember, but a couple of people in our, in our peer group put on a show uh, down in Lakewood, which is sort of a smaller town right outside of Tacoma. And uh, yeah, it was us, a couple of friends, bands, and you know, a couple hundred people showed up and we started playing and people were singing along to the songs and stage diving and it was kind of like oh like we're, we're like a band that people <laughs> like people <laughs> yeah. like our music you know it's not just something that we're doing for ourselves anymore it's like it's kind of caught on so that was that was you know a real profound moment and a really exciting moment and then from there it's just you know it was like the little things where it's like well, let's see if we can do a seven inch and you get a seven inch put out on a friend's label and then it's like let's see if we can get someone to put out a seven inch that's not in Seattle, you know, fight yeah. records down in California hit us up and we did a seven inch with them and did our first tour. And, you know, it's just, it was, I don't know if there's necessarily one moment, but it was just like a lot of little baby steps where it's like, Oh shit. Like people seem to be actually into what we're doing. And uh, yeah, I think the fact that it was so gradual and incremental uh was maybe kind of important you know it was like a very slow ascent i think we appreciated all the the mile markers that we passed and you know i think we were weren't as prone to take it for granted you know we're sort of like no this is something that we worked for and this is something that we that we earned um Mm. and yeah i don't know i think that was kind of an important lesson and obviously like as we mentioned the kind of the beginning of this conversation, you've been a touring musician for years now sort of thing. But I always kind of find it interesting that first kind of time when, when a musician hits the road of like what their kind of expectations were and did kind of the actual experience live up to that. So when you kind of first went out on the road, did you kind of have any sort of preconceived ideas of what you expected and did it match up to that? Or were those first kind of times Botch went out like, a bit of a shambles and you kind of had to learn and grow sort of thing. Well, I think we had pretty healthy expectations. Our, our first tour was a West coast run that we did with uh, a local straight edge hardcore band called trial. And uh, you know, most of the shows were pretty awful. Like they weren't, <laughs> there, there was like a couple of like weird highlights. Like we played uh, epicenter records, which was kind of a big, like, nationally recognized uh punk record store in san francisco and that was kind of exciting because uh 
it was like us and trial and then modest mouse but it, but it was oh, before sick. modest mouse blew up you know so there's like 30 or 40 people at the show but it was exciting for us because modest mouse were you know seattle dudes who we, we didn't we didn't know personally but we knew of modest mouse and we got to yeah. watch this early show from them and it was like oh like this band's sick terrible band name i thought they were going to be like like super wimpy but like that dude's like screaming and there's all kinds of guitar feedback and uh so that was kind of exciting and you know we had a good show a good house show in the orange county riverside area that was you know there was a bunch of enthusiastic kids at and so that was exciting but i mean most of the shows were you know dismal it's like typical first (laughs) you know the promoter invites five of his friends and that's the show yeah yeah um, and then the, later that summer we did our first east coast tour and that was three weeks um and in those three weeks i think we only actually had 10 shows so it's like okay a show every other day but um but it was pretty pretty awesome we got like uh a bunch of good contacts from some other hardcore bands out there and we played in Virginia Beach with Converge and, and Jesuit who were sort of unknown to us at the time but you know obviously Converge is a huge band now and you know mm. been friends of ours since those those shows and Jesuit had uh Nate Newton who's now the bass player in Converge and uh you know, he's been a life, you know, a friend ever since. And I think we played with Boy Sets Fire on that tour and Harvest and all these bands that sort of eventually kind of became big known entities in the hardcore world. We, we yeah. played with on this very scrappy first time out East. And, you know, we established a lot of the connections that we wound up using through the entire course of our career, you know, just by... Mm taking a chance and hitting the road. So, um, you know, for us, it was, you know, looking back now com- with what I'm sort of used to, it was a, another like flop of a tour, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of days like sleeping in parking lots and, you know, like living off of a budget of like $4 a day or whatever. But, you know, it was at the time it was an adventure and we were meeting people and meeting new bands and it was, it was awesome, you know? I think it, it, mm. we we loved it and just wanted to do it as much as possible. Yeah. And obviously sort of like during this time as well, like personally, you were obviously coming to terms with your sort of sexuality and things like that. And I've kind of read that you sort of quote unquote officially kind of came out sort of like 97, 98 kind of time. So obviously like we're now living in a world in 2020 where, okay, things aren't still 100% perfect, but there are a lot more kind of, accepting and stuff like that but as someone that kind of grew up in the in the late 90s early 2000s like I know like from like having sort of gay and queer friends that that was a difficult time so like for you to be a touring musician especially one in the hardcore world at the time which was very sort of macho in aesthetic like how was that for you like did you kind of were you afraid to come out or was it quite an easy thing for you and then I don't know just like having this conversation with you now like you seem like a guy that sort of you see what you like 
you are what you are kind of thing like but was it quite difficult when you were younger like to kind of have that attitude of like i'm gay take it or leave it or do you kind of get yeah, yeah, no um i think you know i came out to my bandmates when i was 19 and you know i think well, I came out to my bandmates at 19, right before we went on tour with Ink and Dagger uh, in the spring of 97. And I remember Tim, our drummer, was just like, oh yeah, like I've been telling people you're gay for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> like, girls would ask about you, and I was just like, ah, don't bother, like he's gay. Um, so, you know, that, I mean, that was kind of like, yeah, maybe, uh, a good representation of how the band felt about it, where they literally didn't care. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as far as like the wider hardcore scene, I think by, by that point, we weren't really too interested in like the more macho, tough guy metal. Like we liked, we liked, uh, or hardcore, we, we, we liked like heavy stuff, but we sort of liked the heavy stuff that had a bit more of a political angle uh, yeah and more than anything we were really into we were starting to get into bands like drive like jehu and unwound and a lot of like the gravity record stuff like heroin and mohinder and uh you know that whole culture was way less macho like it was definitely there was more women involved yeah um it just sort of exuded a very different kind of energy. There's was, was more of like a androgynous kind of energy to a lot of that stuff. You know, you had dudes wearing girl pants and, you know, with big feathered out hair and stuff like that. So it was like, it wasn't like, yeah, yeah. it didn't have like the macho posturing as much. So I think, you know, we kind of gravitated towards that. I definitely felt more comfortable in that culture, <clears throat> but you know, you'd go out on tour and you didn't necessarily have control over what kind of bands you played with from night to night. So every once in a while you paired up mm. with like some like more kind of like meathead thuggish hardcore band. And in those scenarios, it definitely got kind of weird. And I, I think, um, you know, I wasn't uh, a flamboyant gay kid by any means. And I think I kind of took advantage of the fact that I could pass as a straight dude a lot that time like, oh, <laughs> yeah. this is this seems like it could be hostile territory so i'm gonna lay low um but you know generally i, I felt like the it was harder coming out um to family and things like that because that's where i felt like there was going to be more uh emotions involved and, and a little more resistance yeah. and uh you know people are going to be sort of hurt by things with the punk scene, it was more like, if I didn't come out, I felt like I was being a liar, you know, like the punk scene, I was like, so yeah. into the culture of being like a freak and, you know, waving your freak flag and, you know, not giving a shit what other people thought about you and not, you know, falling in line and all that. And to have all that sort of rhetoric in your head and then be like, but I'm not telling anyone that I'm a gay man felt like, like, I mean, that made me feel like a poser, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, totally yeah. not walking the walk. So um, it's a little weird, you know, you get kind of torn between the the real world and like this, the subculture that you're a part of. And 
you know, that, that subculture still had some learning to do and some growing to do, but all in all, I think I've, even as a 43 year old man, like I still kind of consider myself a hardcore kid and I still feel a kind of allegiance to that scene, even though it doesn't really weigh too heavily on my current musical diet, it still feels yeah. like, like I'll forever be indebted to that, that culture because that was like the space that where I felt like I could be me. And uh, that was, you know, life-changing. You know, when, when people get old and cynical mm -hmm. and like talk shit about like the punk scene that they grew up in, I always get really sad because it's like, man, like that shit, I, I know it sounds like a cliche, but like that shit saved my life. You know, that shit, like, yeah, yeah. that was my, you know, that was my safe space, you know? So I don't know, it was important to me. Yeah. And just to kind of kind of bring it up to sort of modern times and stuff, like I don't want to kind of speak for you because I can't, I don't know your experiences and stuff like that, but you kind of mentioned there, like depending on touring or whatever, you obviously can't control the bands you're playing with. And obviously back in the nineties, people might've had a bit more sort of homophobic views and a bit more kind of open with those views sort of thing. But fast forward now, as I said, like kind of people were a bit more, sort of sensitive and tolerant and, and things like that with those situations and they're more willing to kind of bite back if they hear any sort of like homophobic transphobic racist whatever kind of speech sort of thing so for you personally now like when you were younger as you said you could kind of quote unquote pass as a straight guy sort of thing but if you if you're at a show or something now are you a bit more outspoken and kind of wanting to take the lead in that conversation to kind of like not necessarily bat someone down, but just kind of say like, yo, that's a bit of a shitty view, like, and kind of open that conversation up more rather than kind of just sort of be like, I'm a gay guy and just kind of move on sort of thing. Yeah, it's, I'm not like a, a super confrontational person with that kind of stuff. I think a mm. lot of that really just sort of stems from, uh, you know, how I tend to react by, or how I tend to react to really aggressive uh, statements from other people. So uh, right. as an example, like I was super resistant to like vegetarianism, like in high school, I was like, vegetarianism stupid. Like, I don't <laughs> get it. Like all these people like trying to make me feel guilty about eating a hot dog, like fuck that. And then like the second someone was just like, oh, well, you know, like, do you know how much like waste is created by making a hot dog? Like, do you know, like the impact of like, you don't have to care about the pig, but like, do you know, like how that like people in meat processing plants are treated? Like, so once someone kind of like broached the, the subject with me in a way that wasn't hostile or uh, sort of reactionary, but was actually just like, well, you know, have you ever considered this? And I was like, yeah, oh yeah. shit. I'm going to stop eating meat, you know, and, uh, that I, I eat meat now. That's a disclaimer. Either vegetarian or vegan. Uh, but it's kind of the same thing with like, with, uh, you know, people who say ignorant stuff about gay people or trans people or whatever, where it's like, uh, I don't, I don't like putting people on the spot and like lecturing people but if one says something mm. that's homophobic and it's like, oh, that's, that's weird. Um, I'm a gay man. 
you know, and, yeah. and, and like literally like the second you usually say that people are kind of like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. and, like, yeah. and, and you know, for me, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, no, you don't have to like feel bad about it. Like you don't need to like, just think about it. Like you never know what the private life of a person you're talking to might be. So, yeah, of you know, course. Like, you don't know a person's inner struggle. And, you know, I think most of the time when people say homophobic or transphobic things, it, it doesn't come from a place of actual hostility. It just comes from a place of naivety. And if yeah, somehow, yeah. like, broaden that person's perspective, it, that's way more proactive than, like, shaming them and, you know, shutting the conversation down. So there's mm. definitely been times where I've been on tour with people who you know don't really know me and you know they'll they'll say something that's like kind of offensive and it's like all right well here's a teachable moment like yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's never like a an aggressive situation so yeah yeah and just before we kind of fully move away from from botch i'd be remiss if i didn't ask or at least pose the question because it's something that kind of comes around in cycles and it came around again during lockdown is the potential of any botch reunion and i saw obviously ben collar of Newtoid man converge fame was sort of like quoted even though he didn't actually say it that he played <laughs> drums and stuff like that but is there a possibility would you be open to the possibility or because like from my personal standpoint like i never got to see you guys i'd love to but at the same time i'm like no, that was a time of my life that, like, that was kept in that bubble. And I don't know how I'd feel if it did come back. Like, that's just me personally. But is that something that you guys have talked about? Like, or is it just fans wanting something that's not going to happen? Well, the the demand for it is definitely there because we, we do get offers for, like, festival things and stuff like that, like, pretty pretty regularly. So it's it's a discussion that uh is sort of often on the table um mm. you know i think different members of the band have different uh interests in doing that and i would say that that interest is there's usually a correlation between uh people's interest and how much music they're actively producing so right for me as someone that's you know, in one full-time band and in another band that is, you know, does their own share of touring, albeit on a much smaller scale, like, I don't need another thing on my plate. <laughs> I yeah. sort of feel like, you know, the things that Botch made me feel back in the day are already, I already get to have those same kind of experiences and feelings with things that I'm doing now. So, to yeah. have to relearn a bunch of material and to sort of re-harness that, that chemistry between a bunch of musicians and to do all that just to kind of go and try to replicate a thing that's, you know, almost two decades gone is not super alluring. Like I don't, there's, there's not an incentive for me because it's like, well, that's just more stuff on my calendar and I still love all those dudes and I still love those records. And I'm very proud of them, but like to do it in a way where it was actually good and I would feel positive about it would require so much work and energy that could mm. 
like it would it would only detract from things I'm currently working on. You know, like I don't yeah, have yeah. the additional hours in the day or you know days of the week and weeks of the year to like do that stuff. So for me, it's just like, no. Yeah. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, there's like guys in the band that 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 you know got out of the band and went into you know pursued their other sort of career interests and you know that i think they miss it and they, they would love to do it and it's it's always a tough thing because it's you know on the one one hand i i don't want to do a musical project that i'm not super passionate about that's yeah that's just not what i'm about uh but it's also you know it's it's like all those botch dudes are like brothers to me you know like we're still yeah vacation yeah. and you know when there's a couple guys who are really who really want it and you know really want it for like pure reasons like not not as a cash in but just because they really just want to play the music it's you know it sucks to be the guy that's kind of a grump about it you know i don't want <laughs> that's so, i think for the most part it's like it's it's like you know it's kind of a 50 50 thing with the, the band where it's like a couple guys really want to do it a couple guys are like man i got so much other shit going on and i don't i don't want to I, I just can't i don't have the reserves to do this um but you know every once in a while something will come up where it's like well but maybe we should talk about this you know when when uh caleb from caven passed away and they were doing the 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 benefit shows for that you know we definitely yeah. had to have a conversation about that because that was something we were invited to participate in. And that was something that, you know, we would have considered if our schedules already just didn't allow it. So yeah. I don't want to say never um, because there could be another circumstance like that where it's something that we would consider as a group, but overall, I think uh, we're, we're kind of divided on it. So That's fair enough. And I'm now going to completely contradict myself in terms of saying about reunions, but a band that you were in that I'd love to see reform is These Arms of Snakes. So, like, that was obviously a bit of a kind of a, I guess, in some aspects, musical, a bit of a left turn for you. But, like, I don't know, was that just kind of a, a case of, like, your musical tastes had developed and grown and obviously the guys that you were in the bands with, like simultaneously like their music tastes have changed because i get like i think if you take botch in isolation and russian circles in isolation like they're two completely different bands but when you kind of follow that timeline of botch these arms of snakes russian circles it kind of makes sense so was that kind of just a period of time that you were kind of experimenting a bit more of what you wanted to play like and where your musical tastes were going yeah i mean one of the the reasons that botch caved uh towards the end was just you know we started that band when we were all like 16 year olds and you know we we folded the band when we were you know sort of in our mid-20s you know and uh the musical interests of a 16 year old are very different than the musical interests of a 25 year old you know? yeah i think we all kind of did our own growing and even though a lot of our interests, you know, kind of developed together, you know, where we had a lot of mutual things that we all sort of loved and were interested in. I think it just got harder and harder to figure out what the, the middle ground 
for the band would be musically, like what would sort of satisfy everybody. So, you know, we, we just struggled to like find something that unified all of us and we went our separate ways. And for me, it was, you know, I always wanted to uh, experiment a little bit more with melody. Um, I still wanted to be in a loud, aggressive band, but I didn't want to be as adamantly opposed to melody as, as Bob had mm. been. Um, and there was just like, I, I, I wanted, uh, I wanted to get a little bit away from uh, Botch's sort of fixation on constantly having to kind of like reinvent the wheel. Like I, I think we're yeah. always trying to figure out like how to push the band forward, but we're trying to figure out how to push the band forward along a very narrow road. And with These Arms Are Snakes, it was like, we wanted to just have more, uh, I don't know, more creative space to do things. You know, I, I, we mm. wanted to have like a bit more of a, a, a rock approach to things where it was, you know, you could have riffs that were sort of in a, uh, you know, a more sort of traditional like minor scale or something like that. It didn't, everything didn't have super dissonant. Yeah. Like there could be like some pentatonic riffage, you know, that sounded like Led Zeppelin or something uh, in a song and it wasn't, it wasn't like a huge crime to do that. Um, so I think a lot of these under snakes was trying to kind of keep the chaotic energy of botch, but uh, just sort of expand our tonalities and, and our, our sort of absorption of other genres and uh, just be a band that like allowed a bit more evolution and diversity in our, in our, in our sonic space. Um, mm. And it was kind of the same thing with when the transition to Russian circles happened, where it was exciting to be in a in a project where uh, not everything had to be loud and abrasive. Like there was a bit more dynamics, yeah. there was a bit more control, there was uh, a lot more emphasis on on empty space on. Uh, it was less focused on being flashy and more focused on like having dynamics and reserve and nuance. And so, yeah, it was just kind of like, like you were saying, like it maybe doesn't make sense if you isolate one or two of the bands and sort of contrast them. But for me, it was always just like, like enjoying the aggression of punk and hardcore, but, wanting to like break out of the confines of what that meant sonically and just trying to find mm. new ways of harnessing that power but uh having more freedom to incorporate new ideas yeah and i think like that kind of sums up nicely because i think you were saying kind of that idea of playing around with melody and, and things like that and still to this day like easter is one of my favorite oh, yes. records i like absolutely fucking That's love awesome. that record and uh like because obviously like i was a fan of botch so like naturally my progression would be to kind of see what members of that band were doing next and that's kind of how i was introduced to these arms of snakes also through my brother going these guys were in botch yeah. listen to this and kind of giving me the early stuff sort of thing but like did you kind of, because obviously, like, 
I was uh, a kid that was very much into that kind of hardcore metal scene growing up. But obviously, as I've got older, as you've mentioned, tastes evolve and grow. But These Arms of Snakes were one of those kind of first bands that I kind of discovered that were a bit like they still had that, as you say, kind of chaotic, chaotic energy, but was with a bit more of a softer touch in, in some aspects. So did you find like there were a lot of people like myself that kind of came along for the journey from Botch to These Arms of Snakes or were you kind of aiming for a completely different audience? Uh, you know, I, I feel like I was, we were definitely hoping that uh, fans of our former bands would come along for the ride. You know, I don't, we weren't mm. trying to, to disavow our past work or distance ourselves from it. Um, we, were, we were fully fine and, and hopeful that people would, be, would see sort of the connection between something like Botch or Kill Sadie or Nine Iron Spitfire and, and hear that in These Arms Are Snakes. Um, and, you know, some people came along for the ride. Other people kind of didn't. Um, obviously, a lot of people didn't because <laughs> <laughs> snakes. But, uh, you know, we, we and, and we had our own audience, too, you know. And uh, all, all of that was kind of great. You know, it's, I, I, I feel like you can't worry too much about what your audience is going to be. You just kind of have to, like, do the thing that you believe in and hope people latch onto it but the only yeah. the only like criteria for whether something's actually good or not is your own personal taste and if you're trying to like write to pander to some other demographic it's like it's like i just you know it's not a matter of idealism or artistic integrity even it's just like a matter of like how do you even know if it's good like if you're not writing it for yourself like what's what's the criteria for being like oh that's a good song like I wouldn't listen to it, but like the kids are going to love it. You know, like that's, <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't, I don't understand how people can do that. So. No. And then just in terms of kind of like keeping that sort of chaotic energy within the band, like it does come across on records, but one thing that I found really sort of like, eye-opening with these arms of snakes is i got the opportunity to see you guys so i live uh in the south coast okay. of england so i got to see you in southampton i can't remember who the hell it was you were playing with but i like because of like the style of music i wasn't expecting you guys to be as crazy live as you yeah. were and like that was something i was just was completely floored by like this band is playing this kind of okay yeah it's still heavy and loud but it's got melody and it's got tune to it rather than a chuggy beatdown sort of thing yeah. and like i just i was just blown away by that so like i don't want to say like you guys consciously were like we need to go as sane as possible blah 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 to kind of win the crowd but like i don't know was there ever a conscious idea of like we know we've come from this punk hardcore background we may be kind of opening ourselves up to a different audience live, but we still want to keep some of that energy. So like, or was it just kind of natural? Like, Oh, we're, this is how we play. We're just going to go nuts kind of thing. Uh, it definitely wasn't anything that was ever talked about. I mean, I remember playing our first show in Seattle, just like at a little bar. It was like a little, you know, playing on the floor kind of a show. And, uh, 
you know, we set up and started playing and all of a sudden like Ryan and Steve are just like thrashing all over the place. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was just kind of like going to play the songs. Like, you know, it was the first show. So I was kind of nervous. It's like making sure everything's kind of locked in. And then you look over and it's like, Oh shit. Like Ryan and Steve are going for it. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of quickly sort of became part of our, you know, part of our thing, you know, that, that, that energy was, was important. And I think a lot of that energy was also just sort of like inevitable, you know, especially as we kind of became more of a full-time touring thing, you know, we were always operating on like a shoestring budget. We were always just, you know, one mishap away from total ruin. <laughs> and then we, you know, we'd make it to the club, you know, usually right before doors and we'd hurry to load in and then like you immediately start drinking and then by the time you get on stage, you're like drunk and just ready to like <laughs> yeah. fucking let out all the stress from the day. And, you know, it was always just this like spiritual bloodletting on stage or something. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a planned thing, but it was definitely was like a natural <laughs> reaction to the times, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I just because the only reason I bring that up because I just remember like um, I can't remember the specific song, but there was a, a moment in your set where obviously like the guitars were, as you say, kind of like a lot more kind of technical and melody led rather than it just being a straight up riff. And it was quite a, like a softer moment in the in the set. And Steve was so the way that the joiners are set up, I, I'm not sure if you kind of remember it. The stage obviously, the way it faces out, there's a bit on the side which is kind of like. The entrance but then there's just like a dead stop no. wall and he was just facing the wall just screaming and it wasn't like that was part of the song that was just kind of like the release and it was just like as a 20 year old i was like what the fuck is going on <laughs> but just so into it so i just kind of wanted to get where that kind of energy was coming from yeah i mean on the the ideal show you know you're not even really aware of what's happening you're just kind of like you're just a conduit you know and you go up and things happen yeah you know that's always the hope that it's not like you know you never want to go on stage and feel like you're making something happen or, or going through the motions you always kind of want to go up and and you know feel it and I think a lot of times with these number snakes it was almost like an antagonistic thing you know we we kind of yeah. took whatever tours people threw our way and we often landed on tour packages or bills that we you know we were facing uh, a very adversarial crowd or a crowd that was just not, yeah like, didn't give a shit or didn't get it and it was a lot of times it was just like you were just angry and frustrated and rather than like pout and like put on a bad show it was just like oh yeah you're not fucking impressed all right like look who we're gonna <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um yeah i don't know there's there a lot a lot going on there yeah I'm just trying to think, like, I could be completely wrong. Was, did you talk with Pelican over here? Yeah, I was, I was thinking that's probably who you saw. So, so. Yeah, so that's who it was. So just on a completely, like, side note, but just because it's in my memory now. So obviously, like, where you guys were, like, so frantic and chaotic, and then you've got Pelican on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So I went along with my brother and a couple of his friends because at that age, like, I didn't know that many people kind of my own age that sort of especially where I was living at the time that were into it kind of thing so I tagged along with like 
his group of friends quite a lot, especially the Pelican sort of side of music. Right. Like that, I didn't know many people were into it. So I was very much there for you guys. And then Pelican were playing. And then my one of my brother's friends got a bit too drunk. And again, the way that the joiners are set up, the sound desk has kind of got a bit of a barrier around it. And after you guys had played, he'd kind of worn himself out because he was just <laughs> like, had obviously hit the beer too much and was just a bit like kind of feeling the vibe. And during Pelican's set, he was just lent on this barrier and just fell asleep. <laughs> and it was just so... So it was just like complete <laughs> polar opposites of how the show went, which I thought was quite funny. Oh, poor Pelican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I guess that's kind of a nice transition then into uh, Russian circles because obviously you then kind of move into the world of, of post-rock and instrumental music. So again, like what was your kind of thinking of, of wanting to do that style of music? And was it a challenge for you to kind of go into something that was not necessarily saying the stuff before wasn't as musically led, but because there's now a pure focus on what you're doing as musicians, was that something that you had difficulty coming to terms with or was it quite an easy transition for you? Well, when I came into Russian circles, it was, uh, it was a very uh, low commitment. Like it was, wasn't right uh, i wasn't joining the band like uh they literally had just parted ways with their original bass player but they already had a recording session lined up in seattle with matt bayla's um and these arms are snakes and dunson shows with russian circles i stayed at mike mike's house when i helped a friend move cross country like i i was friends with those guys and was friends with matt from him recording snakes and botch stuff um so and we were both managed by sergeant house so when i found out that they didn't have a bass player i was just like oh well i'll, I'll do it like i had filled in on bass for mouth of the architect who were a post-metal band from ohio you know a year or two prior so i was like i can just do that again like i'm like i like those dudes i like their band like i'd be happy to like learn you know half dozen songs or whatever the record's gonna be and yeah do it and they were stoked on it and, and you know it sort of just worked out for everybody and uh it was definitely a little nerve-wracking just because there's a lot more subtlety there's a lot more uh control and discipline and and uh and reserve with the band and i think that was kind of a challenge but it was also something that was really exciting for me because you know it was an avenue i had wanted to explore but like i just didn't really know how to how to sort of approach that with, uh, mm. with you know the Botch guys or the Snakes guys because both of those bands just had already sort of established this precedent of being this loud, aggro, full throttle, you know, all cylinders yeah. running at all times kind of a thing. Um, so it was it was exciting just because it was something new and it was it kind of required a different skill set, and you know, anytime you're doing something kind of new musically it's 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 really exciting so um mm. i think the biggest difficulty kind of came when they when mike and dave were like oh do you want to play a couple shows like we have a couple of like you know weird sponsored shows that we're supposed to do because they're you know they they're paying well and they're paying off the debt of the record and stuff and i was like oh yeah i mean i already know the song so i'll do it and 
I think to go from playing in these bands where you could kind of hide behind some of the noise and the chaos a bit more to going to a band where it was like every sort of note was under scrutiny. Yeah. Was a little, yeah. Uh, that was a little nerve wracking, you know, being reserved on stage was weird. Where I was like, I've got all this energy. I want to let it out, but like, I really <laughs> yeah. got to nail this next note, you know? So that was new and different, but, um, but it was also nice to go play shows and not feel like, you know, you had to like tape every single cable down on stage so that <laughs> tripping on things, nothing's coming unplugged mid set, you know, to not have to go out on stage and be like, all right, like, I hope I don't hurt myself. You know, <laughs> like not yeah, having to yeah. get drunk before a set because you need to just have that like complete lack of care about your, you know, body. <laughs> it was it was nice yeah. to like be like, oh, okay, like I can I can do this and, and sustain this and not like like hurt myself in, in the process. And that was that was kind of a nice a nice change. Yeah, and just like kind of on that, like because obviously I know up until that point you've obviously been in touring bands, you've been playing your instrument for a number of years. But as you say, like to go into that environment where it's kind of scrutinized a lot more, do you? And obviously, not like fast forward to where we are now. Do you feel that being in Russian circles has made you a better bass player because you kind of, either subconsciously or consciously, kind of had to think about like how you're constructing what you're playing rather than, oh, okay, well, I can just go along with the drum beat or I can just go along with this riff like has it I don't want to say it's made you a better bass player because I don't want to kind of condescend you in any way but like do you feel that it's made you think about how you play the bass more yeah absolutely um you know with with botch and these arms are snakes a lot of times it was just like you know the first idea is the best idea you know the thing that you instinctively go to uh is like that's that's the right thing to play because that's the thing that your heart has told you like goes there so there wasn't like a lot of refinement with botching these arms or snakes it was like if a part worked then it was a keeper and then you moved on to the next part and then you moved on to the next song but with russian circles it was like you know there's a lot more refinement and you know you try out an idea and everyone would be like oh that's that's good. What if we try something else? And, you know, we would, we would exhaust, you know, 20 different possibilities for something. And sometimes you came back to the first idea and you're like, yeah, the first idea was the best idea, but sometimes, you know, idea number 20 was the one where it's like, Oh, idea 20 is the one, like that's the one. We're <laughs> yeah. And, you know, with Russian circles, I think I definitely became more aware of, uh, not overplaying, like trying to keep things kind of simple. Um, but mm. also I was really interested in, in kind of playing a role of, you know, hearing these songs that Mike and Dave were putting together and then trying to listen to it objectively and thinking, all right, like what, what does this song need? And rather than thinking like, you know, what baseline am I going to throw here in here? It's, it was more of a thing where it's like, all right, like, like what's, what's working and what's not working. And like, can I fix the thing that's not working with 
some sort of musical contribution. So it, a lot of times I kind of almost felt like, like a, not even like a bass player, but just sort of like this auxiliary person who was trying to help uh, bolster, uh, bolster Mike and Dave's ideas. And uh, that was sort of a different, different mental approach than anything I'd done before. Mm. And uh, it's definitely, even, even now it's just kind of a different way of approaching songwriting compared to something like Sumac where, you know, Sumac is, there's, you know, parts that are definitely rigorously composed and plotted out uh, and very structured, but then there's huge chunks of music that are just like, you know, either improvised or allow, um, I don't know, allow reinterpretation from night to night. So, um, yeah. and you know, like both approaches are, are awesome. You know, like both, both approaches are very satisfying to me. Um, I like being able to sort of sit down and analyze something and like figure out ways of layering it and making it more interesting. But there's also something that's really nice about the immediacy of just being like, nope, you get out there and bang it out. Like, don't overthink it. Just, you know, yeah. you've played bass for 25 years. You know how it fucking works. Just like, <laughs> yeah. just do it. Um, and kind of like, I guess on the flip of what you were saying with, with Botch is like, you kind of, the band was kind of got obsessed with this sort of whole, like reinventing the wheel kind of sort of mindset. And this might just be my view of, of an outside perspective kind of thing, but I don't know when it comes to post rock, post metal, whatever you want to call it. Like my brain has a very small retention for it and it needs to be something like phenomenal to stand out. And like, whenever you guys put a new record out, like, I'm going to be completely transparent here. Like there's times when I'm like, Oh, okay. It's just going to be another Russian circles record. But then I listen to it and it's not, it's just complete. Like you've, you have reinvented the wheel oh. sort of thing. <laughs> so it's like, it's that kind of something that you guys strive for within that music. Because I think within that world, like you need to be like, for me personally, you need to be like top tier or you're just not, good enough if that makes sense and obviously russian circles are like one of the bands that keep going and keep elevating and evolving so is that something that you guys strive for as a band or is that just the way you guys write music i mean i think it's it's definitely it's weird being in a band now that has what, seven full lengths out or however many full lengths we have i don't know because it's you know i've had all this experience with being in multiple bands that have tour to put out records but like they've never reached this point where it's kind of yeah. like oh like we're like like this established thing um and i think there's definitely something uh there's definitely a notion that's always in the back of your mind where it's like do we just do what we always do or do we like try to push things forward like you know, I love bands that like do total creative curveballs, but I also, you know, love shellac or something <laughs> yeah. where it's like, no, like this is this is what we do. These are the boundaries we operate in, and we're just going to explore all the possibilities within these options. And you know, they're both kind of interesting. You know, it's like 
it's it'd be really cool to pull a Radiohead and put out a record like Kid A, where people are like, "What is this?" But yeah, at the same yeah. time, it's like realistically, we're uh, uh, you know we're a full time touring band that that is fortunate enough that we get to do this for our, our jobs. But you know, it's like the second you add like another guitar to your your guitar rack, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's like another hundred bucks in luggage overages whenever you fly there like, <laughs> yeah. really asshole you're gonna bring another guitar to australia like, like <laughs> i'm not about to add like a giant modular synth rack to our sound because while that might be cool for people that want like a complete reinvention of the band it's like i don't want to have to travel with like another fucking five hundred dollar like, <laughs> yeah. you know so I think for us, I think we're very aware that at this point now we, you know, there's probably something that qualifies as like a Russian circles sound. We're mm. also, we've also kind of prided ourselves on trying to make records that already sort of feel like, like mixtapes where, you know, I would, yeah. I would hope that if you listen to Geneva or Empros, uh, our memorial like if you threw it on at a bar and, and had people listen to it like you know potentially people would be checking their phone and shazamming each song and be like oh who's this oh it's the same band like yeah 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 like, this band like changes with every song and it's like now i think people are kind of aware that it's like yeah every russian circles album is gonna have like you know a, a, a certain kind of palette of sound um and that might almost make it seem like that's just our thing now. Like our formula is our, yeah. our diversity is our formula. And uh, then you, you know, it's like, you can get lost in thinking that way or it's like, fuck. So like, like, what do we do if, uh, if we're known for like having all these different sonic approaches, like do we have to like come up with like 10 new sonic approaches for the next record or <laughs> yeah. pick one and like focus on that or like, and, you know, ultimately it just boils down to like, no, you just write the thing that resonates with you and you do that. Like you, you let like your own sort of your own taste guide what you do. And, you know, like our last record, we were all just sort of like, oh, let's, let's focus on riffs. You know, like the atmosphere is really fun. Like the dynamics are really fun, but like, it might just be fun to make a record that's like all riffs. It's all like, heavy yeah, parts yeah. that we like playing live because we thought we were going to be touring on this record a bunch <laughs> like it's like yeah we'll make a really heavy record so that like all these songs are like super fun to play live and now it's like oh we probably won't actually play this record live all that <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah next record you know who knows maybe the next record is going to be a super mellow one because we're trying to write it here in quarantine and you know, yeah like, if you're if you're working on writing music like on a laptop you know swapping files i think it's it's gonna wind up just being more focused on textures and and uh yeah and, yeah and dynamics than you know it's, it's not as exciting to write like 20 moshy riffs <laughs> listen to them back on logic like it's doesn't quite doesn't quite uh you know give you goosebumps like it probably should so We'll yeah, see what happens. Yeah. And then, just in terms, like you mentioned, obviously, like you've 
because of this band you've been afforded the opportunity that this is your full-time job and stuff like that and i don't mean this in a disparaging way but like you're kind of considered like elder statesman of that kind of post metal kind of scene sort of thing but whenever like take away festivals because i've seen you at our tangent a couple of times but when I've, I've seen you like on your own headlining tours like you're never afraid to kind of take a band out with you that's maybe not necessarily like musically in line with what russian circles is like i think uh maybe like two years ago i saw you with cloakroom and it's like okay there's kind of similarities there but like cloakroom has a completely different vibe to what russian circles has sort of thing so because of the position you're in like do you i'm not saying it's a risk because fans of yours will still come and see you but like are you more willing to kind of open that field up and say like oh no we'll take a cloakroom or we'll take i don't know sort of x metal band with us rather than having a band that may be more in line with what Russian circles sound on tour. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about a lot of the post rock and post metal stuff where like, unless it's kind of top tier, like I kind of, I just don't really care. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, you know, I have have some, you know, there's friends of the bands that friends of our band that are in post rock bands. And it's like, you know, I like those bands because, you know, I, I've listened to them with enough scrutiny and like, I kind of know the the mind frame of the people making the music where it's like, I can appreciate it, but on a larger scale, unless it's like, it's like, yeah, I love Godspeed you Black Emperor. I'll buy every new Godspeed record. You know, Tortoise is great. You know, there's, there's great post-rock bands out there, but like, I'm not really too interested in, in hearing a band that sounds like us. Uh, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely not interested in hearing any other bands that sound like explosions in the sky. Like I'm just like I don't need to hear that. Like I'm past that point in my life. <laughs> yeah. Other explosions in the sky knockoff. So um, you know, for us, we usually just take out bands that uh, you know we like as humans and we like as as a group. So you know, cloakroom. You know, those dudes, we played with them in Chicago. We knew Bobby from when he was a native. Um, Love the band, love the dudes. Easy pick to take out on tour. Helmsley was the same, same thing. Like we, we love the Helmsley people. Like Def Evan, we did some dates with them in the States. And then we're like, man, these guys are fucking hilarious. Like we need to take them to Europe with us. And, you know, we, we brought Def Evan on one of our first European tours and, it's like none of those bands maybe make total sense. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are people out there that are fans of ours that would love for us to tour with like another post-rock or post-metal band. But, you know, for us, it's it's more exciting and more satisfying to take a band that we just think is good and that we will want to hang out with for six weeks. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's our priority, so... And just finally, the kind of like the, I guess the final band we'll, we'll talk about is Sumac. I don't want to kind of go too much into it because I know a lot of it is kind of Aaron's baby in some aspects and things. But the, the question I want to pose to you is like to on the flip of what Russian circles do is because Sumac is like, from my perspective, it's about being that abrasive loud band sort of thing. So 
is that kind of your opportunity to flex that muscle again because you're being so intricate and delicate in what Russian Circles is doing? Like, yeah, I'd say so. I, I, yeah, like, so you don't have that itch to kind of throw the heavy riffs into Russian Circles. You can kind of get it out in Sumac. Well, yeah, it's it's a uh, you know with Sumac, um, I'm not I'm not bringing riffs to the table in Sumac. Like Sumac is mm. like. You know, there's like, as I was saying earlier, there's definitely parts that are very fleshed out and deliberately composed. And, you know, it's like, this is how the riff goes. And, and Aaron's the one that brings that to the table, you know, and we just, Rick and I just yeah. figure out how to make it make sense uh, and, and not sound super cluttered. Um, but, you know, the other side to Sumac sound is, uh, you know, much freer, expressive, uh, spontaneous. And, uh, you know, that side of the band, it's, you know, everyone's kind of on equal footing. Everyone's, everyone's contributing to the shape of, of the material. And, uh, you know, that, that aspect of it is, is really, again, like it's, it's kind of like a new thing for me. You know, I've never been in a project yeah. where it was like, all right. And then on the next three minutes, we'll just figure it out. You know, we're <laughs> yeah. like every night it's going to be something new. Like every night, you know, we have to come up with it on the fly. And uh, that's like, I mean, that's, that's been a new challenge and that's been really fun, you know, and, and uh, hmm. kind of exercised a different part of my brain. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I kind of look at Russian circles and it's like, you know, Russian circles, I kind of feel like the equivalent would be like, like, like classical music where like everything's like charted yeah, it's yeah. like in order for it to work you have to kind of know where all the pieces are in place you know there's these loops so there's like a certain amount of like structure that's just unwavering that you you know you have to you have to you know follow along with it and and and, and lock step with it but you know sumac's more like the free jazz band where it's like, uh, like <laughs> yeah. some some guidelines of what's going to happen but otherwise it's just you know you just got to pay attention and keep your ear open and, you know, sort of figuring out who's leading things and then follow along as best you mm. can. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of a, a different, a different beast, but I'm, I'm sort of thankful for that. Cause I feel like if it was, if there was more crossover between what the two bands were doing, it would, yeah, I feel like it'd be a bigger conflict of interest creatively. Yeah. I, I kind of see them as being very different entities at this point. Yeah, and because obviously, like as you say, that kind of spontaneity, kind of nature of of Sumac, like you kind of touched upon it there a little bit. But like, are you kind of following Aaron's lead a lot of the time, or is it just kind of what feels natural at that time? Like there might be a moment where you're kind of leading a section or or something else, or is it kind of mainly Aaron that's sort of putting things in place, and then it kind of feeds off from that? I think it it just really varies. Yeah, it's there's no. Uh... I mean, sometimes actually, sometimes there's, there is a strategy, you know, sometimes it's, you know, we'll approach a section and it's like, okay, well, this, this is, this part's open, this part's going to be free, but the idea is to like establish this kind of mood. So you're, you know, no right. one's going to like, like, you know, it's like supposed to be like a more sparse and, uh, and reserved section, you know, like Nick's not going to do some crazy fucking 
drum solo over it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like we did, we've done a couple sessions where we've done uh, entirely improvised performances with, uh, with Keiji Haino from Japan. Who's, oh, wow. Uh, you know, he's a, a legend in the improvised music world. And uh, the last session we did with him was, was interesting and, and fun uh, because he, you know, we were playing live in Vancouver and, and he was like, all right, how we're going to do this is like every song, he's like, I will point to whoever is going to like take the lead. And, and oh, wow, so that's awesome. Like, you know, there'd be one song and he'd like point at me and Nick. And so like me and Nick start and then Aaron and Aino-san would, would kind of come in with, with, you know, their accompaniments. And so, you know, there's different strategies to how the, the free moments are approached, but um but yeah, yeah, it's that's kind of what keeps it interesting. Yeah, and I'm gonna start sort of winding down because I've taken up way too much of your time. But in terms of like, I guess the scene that you kind of grew up in and is still kind of part of now, like from an outside perspective, like I consider you as like one of the artists that's kind of established this sort of heavy world. So like people like yourself, like Aaron, like steve bronski like jacob bannon like ben collard those kind of like artists i don't know like it seems to be there was a generation that just of incredible musicians that are still putting out this kind of incredible output of music so i don't know is it just because you're all sort of very like-minded people that we have this kind of hub of of artists or i don't know like do you personally feel like there's a connection between you all that kind of makes it stronger and that people are kind of drawn to? Um, well, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I think, um, I think there's maybe a number of factors that are going on there. I mean, uh, Aaron and, and Jake and, and Brodsky, you know, we were all like, you know, kind of roughly the same age and we all kind of came mm. into the hardcore world around the same time, you know, Jake might have, a year or two lead on us, but uh, but we're all pretty close uh, as far as age goes. And, you know, I think being in hardcore bands in the 90s, uh, there wasn't any dream of like being a career musician in that kind of scene. Yeah. Like, that just wasn't why you did it. And uh, I don't feel like it, I feel like it wasn't until like at the drive-in blew up that there was this sort of sea change in terms of what people's expectations were with uh, playing like kind of like loud, abrasive, you know, kind of hardcore or punk uh, like music. You know, I think once at the drive-in blew up, I think people were kind of like, oh, look, maybe if we just toured enough and worked hard enough, like we could do that. And then, you know, how amazing yeah, would that yeah. be? And, but, you know, I think we were all sort of doing our thing before that that happened. So the the career aspirations just weren't there. It was just a matter of like, no, this is like the thing that brings me joy in my life. So, yeah. Um, so I think that was kind of a, a crucial headspace to be in, because I think if you're looking at, if you're trying to measure your success in terms of numbers, it's, you know, you're, it's it's bad business. You know, it's like, you're, you're going to exhaust your 
your patience and your reserves. You're going to, you're going to get burned out, defeated because, you know, some, some projects they take off, some, some don't, you know, and, and if, if your happiness with them is, is linked to your creative satisfaction with it, then it doesn't matter if people don't like your music, it's, you know, you'll keep doing it. But if you're just worried about paying rent when you get home from, you know, your third <clears throat> U.S. tour in a year, it's like pretty easy to, you know, why the fuck am I doing this? So <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think we were all lucky uh, to kind of get started when we, when we did. I also think, um, I don't know, like I've, I've talked with, with Turner about this a few times because it's, you know, as you get older, you know, people have families and, you know, people want stability. And like, yeah. you know, it's, it's one thing to like have a shitty studio apartment that's super cheap, you know, that you can afford when you, you know, to pay for, you know, with, with going on tour and then maybe picking up a bartending gig when you're at home. Like you can kind of do that through your twenties and maybe into your thirties and, and be sort of happy with it. But, you know, people, people get burned out people like the, the glamor of it definitely wears off. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad, you know, if, if I had so many friends that, you know, I toured with in my twenties and into my thirties who kind of just dropped out of the scene and, you know, took up jobs at Amazon or, you know, whenever started working for the man. And, you know, I don't begrudge people wanting that stability and, you know, wanting health insurance and, you know, wanting to own their own homes and all that stuff. I think that's totally understandable, but, um, as an artist and as someone that's kind of like committed to this, this trajectory, it's, it's a little sad to like see those people kind of move on, you know, like it's, it's rough yeah, yeah. because it's like, I don't need other people's affirmation to feel good about what I do, but it's, it's nice to have like people your own age that you can kind of talk about, you know, the, the trials and tribulations and triumphs of being a musician in your mid forties, you know, like it's yeah, nice to have yeah. that peer group. It's, it's weird being 43 and going to a dinner party and talking to people. And it's just like, Oh yeah, I just don't know what, <laughs> like I don't have any <laughs> idea what like my friends with office jobs, what like eight hours of their day are like at all. Like I can't relate to it. And you know, I'll yeah, talk about yeah. my shit and people are like, what? <laughs> so, you know, it's like having people like Brodsky and, and Turner and, you know, the, the converged dudes where it's like, yeah, like, like you get it. Like we're, we're yeah, all, yeah. we're all in this together. And, you know, I think, uh, I think there is some sort of subconscious support group thing happening with, with yeah, that yeah. where it's like, Oh yeah. Like Jake's still going strong. Kurt's still going strong. Like Brodsky's still going strong. Like, it's it's really like kind of affirming to see other people carve out their own path and and maintain it um like that's like super inspiring to me you know you you, you know you, you tend to look to your musical elders you know whether it's like sonic youth or belvins or swans or whoever is like older than you that's like figured out how to keep it going and that's really inspiring yeah it's, it's also kind of crucial to have those people that are like your actual peers you know that you kind of like 
went through the ranks with and to see them still doing it because it's, it's kind of yeah it's just it's encouraging so it's, yeah. it's important to have those people Perfect. brilliant brian how i like to to end this is to ask my guests what their favorite song is but with a bit of a twist and because obviously you're currently in two bands you get two bites of the cherry so what's your favorite russian circles song you'd like to play live and what's your favorite sumac song you'd like to play live and why oh geez all right uh, you have to give me a second here uh <laughs> circles have so many fucking songs at this point gonna write it. um yeah i mean i feel like my favorite russian circle songs are usually the ones where they're uh there's some degree of like technical difficulty in, in pulling them off uh, yeah because it's kind of like the uh like in the rush documentary that they talk about, about tom <laughs> yeah. sawyer and they're like yeah we still love playing tom, tom sawyer you know we still play tom sawyer at every concert just because it's still hard <laughs> and like still yeah like, yeah like a 25 percent chance we're gonna fuck it up somehow so uh i can kind of relate to that so for me it's maybe something like africa or uh i really yeah. liked playing 1777 we haven't played that one in a while but those songs have enough things kind of going on and enough like there's, there's they have their moments where it's like oh here it comes here it comes like yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's always a little exciting and there's like a little additional adrenaline rush that kind of comes with that so i would, I would probably say i'd say africa i'll go with that one is my favorite russian yeah. circles one and then sumac that's kind of tricky because one thing i noticed uh when we were touring on love and shadow is that you know there was like some nights where you'd play we play these shows and all the the heavy parts were like just like super satisfying like you like any of the dumb knuckle dragging riff parts were just, oh, this is, yeah this is fucking heavy this is satisfying and then you know we'd get to like the the open moments where you know the 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 unknown uh unknown path and and we would kind of just stumble our way through it and it's like yeah like the improv part didn't really take off tonight but then the next yeah. night you know you'd be dealing a lot of times i think it had to deal with the acoustics of the room but you'd be kind of playing uh the heavy parts the structured parts and it's like ah, this doesn't sound as like as as powerful as it did last night but then you kind of get to the the improvised parts and like a lot of it is just a lot of what the band does is we play at this really loud volume and we sort of play off the acoustics of the room yeah yeah you know, like weird notes kind of sustain like resonant frequencies of the room kind of change the way certain notes resonate and a lot of nights you know it's like ah, the structure parts suck but like the room was so fucking weird that like the improvised <laughs> yeah. passages just went in this like crazy fucking territory and like you just like get super excited because you're in this moment where like the room takes over and you're just kind of like channeling or fucking frequencies you know the room kind of harbors so that was really kind of a, a fun thing to to watch and i feel like uh i don't know maybe maybe a song like the task is maybe like a sort of the 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 most uh 
classic example of a song like that where yeah. the, the room could really kind of take over and and do its own thing that was out of our control and unexpected but somehow kind of magical yeah perfect brilliant ryan brian thank you very very much for yeah. your time like i appreciate how long you've you've indulged my, my questions for so i really oh, appreciate thanks, it thanks for interesting um, being being paying attention <laughs> knowing your shit <laughs> Um, and hopefully we'll have you over in the UK a lot sooner rather than later. As I well. hope so. Perfect. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, Take care. So there we have it, folks. Again, a massive thank you to Brian for taking some time out of his day to have a little chat with me. Also, forgot to say at the top of the show, I just wanted to say a huge, huge thank you to uh, Lauren from uh, Rally Unable, who set this interview up. She's been a huge supporter of the show since day one um, and could not have been more accommodating to set this up. I had to deal with my stupid schedule at the moment and we kind of hashed out and got got some time with Brian and sat to sit him down and have a chat. So yeah, just wanted to say a massive thank you to her um, and give her a shout out for all the incredible work she does with uh, Rarely Unable because as the name says, she's rarely unable to sort the shit out. So props to Lauren. Um, as always, you can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the world of Russian circles and Sumac on all their various social media platforms, which will be linked in the description of the episode. Um, and again, whether this is the first time you've listened to the show or the 160th time, really, really appreciate it. And you can, if you can share, review, rate, subscribe the show, then that really, really does help us out. But for now, that is it for another week. Thank you for stopping by the Justin Insight podcast, and I will see you soon. <laughs>